Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. When his new stepdaughter is kidnapped during a visit to the Grand Canyon, archaeologist Chuck Bender faces up to his secret past and his unfamiliar family man role as he confronts every parent's worst nightmare, a missing child. In Tony Hillerman fashion, Canyon Sacrifice, a new novel by Scott Graham, out from Torrey House Press, explores the rugged western landscape, the mysterious past of the ancient Anasazi Indians, and the modern Southwest's ongoing cultural fissures. Canyon Sacrifice is the first book in a proposed National Park mystery series. In addition to the mystery series, Scott Graham is author of five nonfiction books, including Extreme Kids, which is the winner of the National Outdoor Book Award. His other books include A Baffled Parent's Guide to Coaching Six and Under Soccer and Adventure Travel in Latin America. Scott Graham joins me by telephone. And uh, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. Appreciate you uh, being on with me. Uh, so, uh, what's what's the goal here? You uh, you've written some nonfiction uh, books. Uh, now you're launching into a mystery series set in the national parks. What are you What are you hoping to do here? Well, I guess two things. One, I, I share most uh, most writers, if not most people's, dream to to write fiction and to to be a be a storyteller on the on the on the written page. And um, I'm trained as a journalist and worked as a journalist for for lots of years. And that's, as you noted, have written. Uh, plenty of nonfiction as well, um, but have always wanted to try my hand at fiction. Have have uh, played with it over the years, and, and now I've got a, a, a manuscript that that found a wonderful publisher and has been uh, turned into an ongoing series. And I'm loving what I'm you know getting the opportunity to do. Uh, the other the other point that I'm trying to to uh, conquer or to to achieve is. To work with the mission of Tory House Press to um, bring word to folks of the values of preservation of, of uh, our lands out here in the, the beautiful West. Now you arrived at the West as as a boy. Tell me about uh, you. You uh, I guess were born and raised in Akron. Correct. Started out in Ohio, inner city Akron, Ohio. Grew up uh, a few blocks from the Firestone Tire and Rubber plant that was at that time pumping out lots of. Uh, Pollution into the air. I was fortunate enough to move, uh, thanks to my uh, parents getting work out west to Durango when I was 10 years old. And I'll tell you what, uh, first day of school, I showed up for uh, elementary school here in Durango, where I still live, and looked around me. The the snow was on the mountains uh, north of town. The 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 sky was bright blue, and it was even at ten years old. I, it, it felt like I died and gone to heaven. I mean, it was just an amazing experience to get to move to such a beautiful place. I've still got wonderful memories of Ohio and lots of family out there, but the West kind of got right into my blood and has uh, stayed there ever since. Uh, so, what, uh, what brought your parents out to Durango? It, uh, I wonder. As I read the book, I wondered about the economy of the of the Four Corners region. Your hero is an archaeologist. What uh, what brought your parents out? Well, my parents are uh, teachers, professors. My father came out after he finished his Ph.D. in economics at uh, Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland and uh, got work at Fort Lewis College, which is the small college on the hill above Durango here at the edge of town, and uh, spent a wonderful career here in Durango as a professor. I believe, if I'm, I hope I'm not mistaken in this, I was reading an article about John Smith, who's... Uh... 
Um, I've got the name wrong. He, he was former football coach here at Utah State University. Went to Arkansas, big-time coach. Yeah, now. you're right. You're right. Yeah. And I think that's right, John L. Smith. I John, John L. Smith. I was missing the middle uh, middle initial. Which yeah, is yeah, they call him John L. I don't yes. know why. <laughs> uh, he's been really fun to have in town. A real live wire and a, and a real everyone, – everyone's really proud to have him here. Um, people kind of thought when he showed up that he was going to come here to kind of take an early retirement. But instead, he has poured his heart and soul into the uh, football program here at Fort Lewis College. And he's just a fun guy. And, uh, and and then the funny little side story, he managed to get us on national television this year for the Division Two football game of the week. And so we all showed up at the at the football stadium. None of us who really know a heck of a lot about football in Durango were not exactly a football town and had a blast being on national television. So <laughs> wonderful. He's, yeah, he's been a yeah. wonderful addition to our community. Yeah, I think some people thought, well, what, what are you doing going to Division Two? But, you know, because it's, it's right. a, sort of plane rides, it's bus rides and long rides at that. But uh, it sounds oh, exactly. like he's having a blast. Exactly. And that's why people thought, oh, he's probably just coming here to, to, to you know, kind of kind of semi-retire. But instead, no, he's just he's just loving, I think, kind of going back to some of his roots um, toward the end of his career and just having a having a wonderful time here and, and uh, really enjoying it. So it's, it's neat to see. Yeah. Uh, so you got you really got into the outdoors, right? You, you uh, this is a revelation to you arrive at 10 years old. You have a lot of opportunity. And you've had some interesting experiences. Um, it, your, your occupations have included newspaper reporter, magazine editor, radio disc jockey, coal-shoveling fireman I'm reading from the, to the steam-powered yep. Durango to Silverton narrow-gauge railroad. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's always fun, of course, when you list your, when you list your jobs for your bio for, for authors to put, put some fun stuff in there. But I did work my way through college in the summers on the narrow-gauge railroad that we have that runs between Durango and Silverton up in the mountains. So at that time, the railroad, now it's year-round, but at that time it ran only during the summer. So they would hire on a bunch of seasonal workers. Um, and uh, I spent a lot of time shoveling coal uh, into those engines, working in the roundhouse, and then occasionally get to make the run up to Silverton. Um, for most of the most part, I was I was firing the engines in the roundhouse, working with the mechanics and people with more experience than than I had were the ones that were actually shoveling the thing, making it making it make the trip all the way up to Silverton and back. But I did get to do that a handful of times. And I'll tell you what, there's there are a few experiences of the of the kind of blue collar physical nature that are more exciting than. Uh, shoveling two tons of coal into a into a hot firebox and making sure that a an engine uh, can pull its its haul of cars all the way up to Silverton nine up to nine thousand three hundred feet in elevation um, through the course of three hours. It's a fascinating job. <laughs> I, I hear that's a beautiful run. I'd, I'd like to it's do that someday. It's a gorgeous run. Yeah. Yep. It's a gorgeous run. And talking about the outdoors, it's a it's a great access to the Womenage Wilderness. Um, lots of folks get off halfway along that ride and then and then hike in to climb the three 14,000-foot peaks that are high above the, the railroad tracks there in a place called Chicago Basin. Hmm. Now, you've spent a lot of time in national parks. Uh, the, this this current mystery we're getting into talking a little bit about the plot here is set in the Grand Canyon. That's uh, You've spent a lot of time there. Uh, the yep. next next one, I understand, will be in uh, Rocky Mountain National Park and the third one in yep. Yellowstone. That's correct. Yep, just, just working my way along uh, at this point. Of course, uh, a lot of the goal when you're working on a series is to just get the thing to get some uh, wind under its wings and to take flight. And so one of the ways that uh, Tory House and I are working to do that is by starting with the more popular national parks um, and the, the, the ones that have more visitors to them. And so our, you know, basically people are more aware of those parks. And so we've started with Grand Canyon 
and moving on to Rocky Mountain and Yellowstone, which are the three most visited national parks in the West. Um, but the stories that come out of the parks, of course, are the same as, as that you can create in any national park. And so I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to um, getting to some of the parks that are closer to my home and to my heart, including arches and canyon lands over in you know, on, on your side of the Utah-Colorado border mm. and Mesa Verde here on my side of Utah, or Utah-Colorado border. Yeah, I was just going to ask you if you were going to you know, set some stories in the Utah National Parks. I guess those will be coming. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I can't wait. The, uh, you know, the fact is that my folks moved out here instantly, uh, fell in love with the outdoors, too, and so basically turned on myself and my siblings to all things outdoors that were available to us from Durango. And a big part of what we did was was uh, get hold of an old international travel all that my folks bought at a government auction and took that over to Canyon Country and spent a lot of time exploring canyon lands and arches and um, the whole Canyon Country back when um, – the the visitor center to get into Canyonlands National Park, the Needles District, was a little a little tin Airstream trailer, and uh, uh, there just were a handful of folks back there exploring. Um, and so I, I I basically have my my parents and their interest in the outdoors to thank for uh, sparking my interest that I've then been fortunate enough to share with my two sons as as we've raised them here in Durango. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell me a bit about uh, Chuck Bender, the, your hero of the story. Um, he is a professional archaeologist. You're, you're an amateur archaeologist, I believe. You, you, uh, probably some of you in Chuck Bender. Yes, absolutely, but hopefully not too much. He's, he's, uh, the, the goal of Chuck Bender is to create an interesting character. And if and and by interesting, you know, when you're when you're creating interesting characters, you want them to have some some faults and some foibles. And so, um, I, I hope there isn't too much of me in Chuck because because he's not at all times the most likable guy in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but the but the result of his of his faults and foibles is that he gets himself into difficulties that then make for hopefully interesting reading um, by those following along with his stories. Uh, yeah, in fact, you start the novel with him uh, picking a fight, essentially. He's uh, right. got a couple of tourists throwing rocks at a squirrel, and, and Chuck's reaction is to throw a rock at this guy, and it ends up in a br- very brief fight. Uh, Chuck puts him down, but uh, uh, Chuck, Chuck's got a past. Precisely. And, um, and that's, of course, what, what, what tends to make fun uh, for enjoyable fiction reading for anything I've ever read. And so I've tried to do the same when creating my, my uh, protagonist in Chuck and the rest of the characters. Um, essentially, when you're, when you're talking about genre fiction, which is what we're talking about here, uh, murder mystery, you've got a, a template that, that those who are reading it are expecting you to follow. Um, a lot of what you're trying to do then is, is create an interesting story within that expected genre. And so in this case, what I've tried to do with my uh, protagonist is create all sorts of problems for him. Okay. So he starts out, he's basically what we've got is a, is a fish out of water story. Um, this is a guy who has really become comfortable in his own skin over the years. He's had a good career um, as a solo contract archaeologist kind of on his own. And he has, um, in short order, just before the, the opening of the first book of the series, fallen in love with and married a, a woman much younger than himself um, who has two young daughters, a single mom. Um, she's uh, uh, kind of a fiery Latina woman from the big city of Albuquerque compared to Chuck, who, like me, is from Durango. So I can write at least where he's from based on where I'm from. 
Um, and so he suddenly, his, his whole life has been um, thrown into upheaval, uh, you know, by his own making, of course. And as a result, uh, he's got all sorts of basically, I'm, I'm trying to throw basically the kitchen sink at him <laughs> so that there's lots for the reader to, to be able to chew on and lots for me to be able to chew on as a writer as I write the story. Now, will Chuck be the hero of all the, all the books? Yep, Chuck. Okay. And um, I hope as the, as the series develops, um, his uh, young wife, Janelle, and, and uh, the two young daughters who will be growing up with the series will play increasing roles as well. Um, my goal in creating Chuck and with him having a family is that in many cases, the national park experience is, is a family experience. Um, and so you've got a lot of families who are out there. Um, and I'm a family guy. I mean, I just, I really enjoyed, um, the family dynamic and, and raising my kids with my wife. And so that, that whole family dynamic is one that I enjoy exploring myself have done so with my um, previous nonfiction writing. And so I really want it to be, to, to have that kind of that family feel to it, that you've got uh, folks who are, who are more or less normal folks that get in extraordinary situations in the national parks and then have to work together to get themselves out of them. Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff, of course, about the Grand Canyon. Uh, it's a place I've never been. Uh, many of our listeners will have been there. Uh, you've explored it thoroughly, and there's some out-of-the-way places here, and, and and you make up a few fictional places in the Grand Canyon as well. That's correct. Uh, I want to talk That's about correct. the Grand Canyon. When we come back from a break, we're going to take a break. And I'll have you read a passage from the book. Uh, hopefully, you maybe have a couple of passages as well. But this one is on page nine to, to get you ready. Um, just the, the middle of the page and then over the paragraph top of uh, page 10. I'll have you read that when we come sure. back. Uh, it's Scott Graham is our guest. He's explored the Grand Canyon all his life and is backpacked into the canyon's farthest reaches. He's even rode his own 18-foot raft down the canyon's notorious Colorado River Rapids. We'll want to hear about that. Uh, he's author of several books, including Extreme Kids. And uh, uh, before we close, I want to talk about a baffled parent's guide to coaching six and under soccer. I have some friends who've, who've, uh, who've coached uh, junior jazz um, and described it as herding cats. We'll talk about that as well. <laughs> exactly um, right. <laughs> well, uh, but the book here is Canyon Sacrifice. It is the first in a national park mystery series. This one's set in the Grand Canyon. Uh, following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Alumni Association, offering the 2015 USU Alumni Scholarship Calendar, featuring photos of USU campus lit at night. Details at usu.edu slash alumni. Some problems in our relationships may seem impossible to solve. There is an old saying, the difficult we do immediately, the impossible may take a little longer. Here commentator Richard Ratliff discuss a technique that gives this old saying life and reality in difficult relationships. His commentary airs on Utah Public Radio. And that uh, commentary will be coming up uh, at the end of the program here. Uh, you're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Scott Graham, who's an avid outdoorsman. Uh, he has explored the national parks all of his life, and uh, now he's out with a new mystery series. It's the National Park Mystery Series. The first book is called Canyon Sacrifice, and it's set in the Grand Canyon. Uh, the hero is Chuck Bender. He's an archaeologist. When his new stepdaughter is kidnapped during a visit to the Grand Canyon, he faces up to his secret past, his unfamiliar family man role. He's uh, recently married a single mother. Uh, he confronts every parent's worst nightmare, a missing child. 
the blurb Scott Graham mentions Tony Hillerman in Tony Hillerman fashion after the manner of Tony Hillerman. I think you have personal experience with Tony Hillerman. I do. Uh, a real fortunate experience. When I was a young writer, I uh, had moved to Albuquerque with my wife, who was uh, getting set to start medical school at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, and had won my first book contract for my first nonfiction book. Didn't know who to, who to turn to to uh, um, figure out whether the contract I was being offered had any validity or not. Um, this was back in the days before the ease of looking things up on the Internet. Um, and the only writer I'd ever heard of who happened to live in Albuquerque was a guy named Tony Hillerman. And so I looked his name up in the white pages, gave the phone number there a call. His wife answered the phone, uh, handed the phone over to, to you know, who at that time to me was Mr. Hillerman. And uh, he graciously spent oh, 15 or 20 minutes on the phone with me, uh, not really talking much about the contract, but just talking to me about writing in general and what a wonderful experience uh, he was having as a mystery writer at the time. And this was tremendously encouraging to me. And then uh, I hung up the phone and thought, oh, that's nice. I've got to talk to this guy. A couple weeks later, I catch him on the Today Show on NBC, and his career, having written at that point several mysteries, was just just basically red hot and was just completely taking off into the stratosphere. And uh, it became that much more clear to me how kind he'd been in the middle of all that he was involved in to take to take time and, and uh, speak so so uh, graciously to a young, struggling writer such as myself. Mm, that was gracious of him. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. You just uh, looked him up in the in the white pages and that, yeah. he, then, <laughs> and that he answered. Uh, what, what did he tell you? What did he tell you? What, uh, what, what advice did he give you? You know, it's been a long time ago, so I don't remember any of the specific quotes, but what I remember is the tone of it, <clears throat> which was just that, that – um, though that, that he had just gotten so much joy and so much pleasure out of, out of what he'd been doing um, and so much gratification out of the fact that he'd come to be appreciated for what he was doing. In his case, of course, he was, he was shining a light on the Navajo people and the Navajo reservation, um, not only the, the difficulties that um, um, the Navajo faced and, and continued to face, but also this, this incredible culture that they have. And um, he was really the, one of the first to, to really um, recognize that value and then to share it with uh, you know, a nationwide and then an international audience who then grew fascinated with it. And um, so I think it was mostly what I took from him and from what we talked about was just that appreciation that he had for what the written word can do. Let me have you read this uh, passage. This is uh, maybe you could start with a loud thump. Uh, we're talking about uh, you know kids. You, I think you write sure. kids kids well. It's obviously you have kids. Um, yep. And uh, then continuing to completing that uh, paragraph over page ten. Sure. Um, a loud thump issued through the canvas walls of the camper as Rosie leapt from the sleeping platform to the floor. Chuck smiled ruefully. Our honeymoon. A few days, Janelle said, said, just us, before school starts. A chance for you to show the girls and me what it is you do out here for months on end, remember? Yes, he remembered, and yes, Janelle was right on all counts. This had been her idea, coming to the Grand Canyon, a place she'd never visited despite her whole life spent six hours away in Albuquerque. She'd insisted on camping, too, an entree of sorts for her and the girls to Chuck's archaeological world, the epicenter of which was right here at the canyon. The millions of visitors who visited the Grand Canyon National Park each year did so for the incredible views of one of the most awe-inspiring geological wonders on Earth. But Chuck's fascination with the place was different. 
though he bid for contracts all across the high desert uplift known as the Colorado Plateau, which stretched more than 100 miles in all directions from the Grand Canyon. He bid hardest and lowest for contracts at the canyon itself. And every time he looked into the canyon's depths and felt his bones tingle with its long history of humankind, he knew why. Hmm. So uh, the first thing that struck me as uh, reading through the the, the novel is um, Janelle and, and her yep. kids too. I think are sort of newcomers. They're they're not outdoors people, um, right? Which uh, and I imagine you'd find a lot of people in the West. I, I think you describe me that way. I've <laughs> I've been out in the in the outdoors, but I sort of prefer to just roll the window down and you know and drive through. Um, and and the other factor is uh, Utah, for example, in many Western states, we think of ourselves as rural, but we're really quite urban. Uh, most people live in in cities. Right. And so a lot of people don't get out, even though, as Janelle says, you know, she's only six hours away from the Grand Canyon. This is the first time she's visited. Absolutely. And so and, and, and in fact, that's that's uh, by um, by design that I've, I've got her set up as, as the newbie, because it gives me an opportunity to do exactly that, to, to provide an armchair um, reader with uh, a character with whom they can relate. And so they can then kind of experience vicariously the outdoors and getting introduced to the outdoors um, as I introduce Janelle and her daughters to the outdoors. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chuck, on the other hand, is I guess more like you in that respect. Uh, he, he's been there and done that. He, he, he loves it. He's spent a lot of time with the outdoors. Absolutely. And, and that part of it is absolutely just um, myself, you know, throwing myself into, into Chuck because uh, I just continue to feel fortunate about living out here in the West and uh, spend as much time as I can getting outdoors. Um, it's just uh, we're so fortunate with what we do have. And if I can if I can either just share it with people vicariously who want to who want to remain armchair readers or if I can share it with people in such a way that they decide to throw the book down and head out there, um, either way, I'll consider myself and the writing I'm doing a success. Well, I wonder what it is about the Colorado Plateau, just in general, narrow into the Grand Canyon a little later. Um, you know, some people might uh, come out, visit the place, and think it's pretty f- uh, forbidding, uh, pretty rugged, pretty wild, maybe too dry. What, what is it about the Colorado Plateau that so enchants you? Well, actually, I'll actually um, go almost the opposite of what you're saying about that. When you, when you look at a place like the Colorado Plateau, and then you compare it to uh, so many other uh, places to go explore the outdoors. In fact, uh, the Colorado Plateau, southern Utah, um, is is a remarkably um, easy and, and and terrific place to visit with regard to the weather, as long as you choose your you know choose your months correctly. I mean, the shoulder seasons in uh, uh, in the Colorado Plateau and in Canyon Country are some of the most perfect, beautiful weather. Uh, for visiting the outdoors, I think that exists on Earth, and so when you head out into those into those canyons on on in the spring and fall, you can be pretty assured that there aren't going to be any flash floods, there aren't going to be any big storms. Uh, the weather is pretty mild; it's dry, so you're not dealing with the kind of humidity that you deal with if you're say trying to explore the swamps in the south. Uh, you're not way up high in the high country uh, that's that I've got around here in Durango that, that where you're dealing with either either the danger of thunderstorms, hail, snow, even in the middle of July, um, you can really go out into those places and just wander around and just kind of breathe in the, the smell of the pinon and the junipers. And uh, and it's it's really a pretty easy way to, to just kind of drive down there, do a little day hiking, and, and really get a beautiful taste of some really um, remote 
gorgeous country. Can, can you do that year-round? I guess in some places snow would be a, a inhibitor in, in some uh, times of the year. Yeah, virtually year-round. It's it, mm-hmm. I would argue that it's, it's uh, although the, the busiest times in Moab and outside of Moab to visit the national parks of Arches and Canyonlands um, are during the summer months, because that's when people, of course, have the, the time and the ability to, to head out. Um, it's pretty darn hot in the middle of the day to be going out at that time, um, those months. And then in the winter, you know, it's pretty chilly. But no, you can you can really visit year-round. Um, the main time you want to avoid the Colorado Plateau, in my, in my opinion, is about the, the, the last couple of weeks of May and the first couple of weeks of June, which were when the, the gnats come out. And they can be, uh, if you if you if you catch a hatch at the wrong time, boy, they can they can make for a pretty miserable experience on the Colorado Plateau. Okay, but good. other than that, I mean, you can always you can always kind of get cooled down or or uh, wear enough layers to get warmed up during the winter. Yeah, good good intelligence. So avoid it uh, late yeah. May, early early June. Um, let me turn to the Grand Canyon, uh, and you've explored uh, you know a lot of the nooks and crannies here. Do you suggest to people not only the Grand Grand Canyon but other national parks get off the beaten track? Well, you know, in, in, the truth is the Grand Canyon is, it, it takes a lot to get off the beat path in the Grand Canyon uh, because it is such a, it's such a challenging place. And so, no, I, I argue that if you're going to go experience the Grand Canyon, just go enjoy the fact that you're going to be on trails that have a lot of other people who are enjoying them with you because those are the trails that are, that are the, the safest, the, the, uh, the um, most well-trodden, um, that are that are well po- you know, policed or well well rangered by the by the park staff, and so you're going to be safe because because the Grand Canyon, um, if you're going to go backcountry, is is a place you really have to know your your P's and Q's before you you really go off on some of the the trails that are really rugged and really remote, or or try to do some of the routes even that they've got in the canyon that that require oh down climbing some cliffs and and uh, um, things where if you end up twisting an ankle some simple little thing like twisting an ankle you can be in some pretty uh, harrowing circumstances very quickly hmm. so Grand Canyon unlike what I'm talking about with the Colorado Plateau uh, where you can really wander around and day hike and be and be you know really close to roads but really remote the Grand Canyon just because of its depth and its and its uh, the severity of its geologic formations argue for those who haven't got a lot of experience. Uh, staying on the beaten path at first, for sure. If you just joined us, we were talking with Scott Graham. He's uh, author of several books, uh, most recently the first in a uh, series that's going to be the National Park Mystery Series. This one's set in the Grand Canyon. It's called uh, Canyon Sacrifice. And you're welcome to join this conversation if you would like. Uh, you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And on Twitter, we're at Utah Public Radio. Uh, I wonder, uh, before we get on to more of the Grand Canyon, talking about the Colorado Plateau, are there, are there some places you you could recommend to us, some pl- places we could maybe uh, get to, or or maybe some off-the-beaten-track uh, places that, uh, that are some of your favorites? Well, I, you know, since we're talking uh, to people in Utah, I, I think that the, the Utah backyard is a place that I have just grown to, to love and have, have really appreciated sharing with my family as I've grown up and, and was fortunate to have it shared with me. The the, the place that's really opening up uh, with for this generation is the area that's known as Cedar Mesa, and that is directly west of Monticello, Utah, on U.S. Highway 95. Um, and that area um, has, has become, has gotten protected more and more 
by virtue of the fact that it is being discovered by people. And so the result is that you've got a ranger station out there now. Um, you've got some decisions that have been made about keeping, uh, um, the limiting grazing in certain places so that the, the amazing, um, old Indian ruins that are in that area are, are better preserved for everyone. And the day hiking that you can do there for, again, people who haven't done a lot of the outdoors is absolutely remarkable. Um, you can go to what's called the Cane Gulch Ranger Station west of Monticello, and they'll line you out with the amazing day hikes that you can do. And you can see not only uh, incredible Utah uh, backcountry and canyon country, but you can see the the ruins from the folks who lived there a uh, thousand years ago, and and uh, and really get a get a good feel of of the lives that they lived uh, there before we ever showed up. So that's Cedar Mesa. Yep, the Cedar. general area is known as Cedar Mesa. Okay. Literally, you can go stay at the Comfort Inn or whatever in Monticello. Go out there and and day hike, um, and and do it in absolute comfort, and yet. Uh, feel like you're while you're hiking that day uh, uh, west of town in the middle of nowhere. And there are places like Fish and Owl Canyons, Mule Canyon, that are just um, remarkable hiking opportunities. And the, and the beauty out there, even the drive out there, the, the beauty of the drive out there um, is absolutely astounding. It's interesting you said that uh, since more people have discovered this, it's getting more protection. That there's sort of a paradox there, which can go either way. I, I would imagine, if too many people right. discover an area, then then maybe you maybe gets broken down, maybe gets degraded. You're right. No, and 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 it, it, that's a, that's a debate that has been going on um, almost as long as as tourists have been have been out visiting places. I tend to fall on the side of the fact, uh, the, the belief that, in general, uh, the 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 more awareness there is for the values of uh, our backcountry areas, um, the more protection that tends to occur. Um, in in my opinion, and again, this is subject. This is subject, like I said, of great debate. So there are those out there listening who are going to disagree with me on this. Um, but in my opinion, in general, when, when these places get discovered, most folks are, are of the day hiker sort. And most of what people end up doing are hiking a mile or two or a few miles from the nearest roads. And, um, and so if you've got a whole crowd of people who are just doing the stuff close to the roads, the awareness that they bring to that area then ends up um, creating real protections for all those areas that are further from where everyone's day hiking. And so then what you end up with is, is for those who really want to get out of the backcountry, you end up with these areas that are better preserved um, for them to really get out there with their backpacks and, and, uh, and to really explore. So um, in my mind, in, 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 for the most part, awareness leads to respect, leads to um, better protection and better preservation. And that's certainly absolutely one of the things I'm hoping could occur with my series is that uh, the national parks are always struggling for funding, always struggling to to uh, find that balance between paved kind of wheelchair access trails and um, and creating good backcountry experience for those in the national parks who want that. And um, and by I hope you know, creating kind of awareness that I may create through my fiction writing, uh, there may be more opportunities over time for that balance to be achieved in our national parks. Mm. Uh- I wonder if one of your hopes is the shining a spotlight through a mystery series could encourage more funding for for national parks. We've been reading about uh, decreases in funding and and the problems that that perhaps is creating. Yeah, absolutely. No, in fact, I think I, if I recall correctly, in the, my acknowledgments for if not Canyon Sacrifice for the upcoming book Mountain Rampage uh, that will come out uh, in the spring, I, I 
I say exactly that. Um, it's just, it's just the, the, the truth of the matter is that it does take money to, um, to augment preservation efforts. It, it, you can't just throw up a fence and say no one's going there. You do have an obligation to um, continue to preserve and protect, and that costs money. And um, so, yep, that's one of the things that would be great to see is, is and, and of course, one little mystery series is not going to do it, but, but all of us together, as we become aware of these incredible um, lands that we have out here in the West, including the national parks, uh, all of us together, that awareness can lead to, um, I think, uh, increased funding that then basically preserves these places for our kids and grandkids. And for, you know, and for the, the flora and fauna that are there as well. Mm-hmm. We'll take another break. We'll come back with Scott Graham, who's author of the National Park Mystery Series. The first is called Canyon Sacrifice. It's set in the Grand Canyon. You're welcome to join the conversation by email to upraxis at gmail.com. I'd, I'd be interested to know your favorite place along the Colorado Plateau, your favorite national park, perhaps. Um, or you can encourage Mr. Graham to uh, set his fourth novel in a, a certain place. I don't know if you have a plan for the fourth novel. Scott Graham. Plan for the fourth, but but the fifth is up in the air right fifth now. Up in the air. We, could, we could get so a vote going on. Yeah. What are known as the okay. big four. <laughs> All right, so we could we can encourage Mr. Graham to set it in Arches or Canyonlands or one of the Utah Utah parks. Uh, you can also join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m. Offering muesli with fresh fruit, walnuts, and yogurt. Breakfast menu at crumbbrothers.com. Celebrate American composer Leroy Anderson with a special program of his Christmas music. There'll be his famous sleigh ride, as well as the arrangements, a Christmas festival, and the three suites of carols. This is Kurt Anderson, and I hope that you'll join me for a Leroy Anderson Christmas Festival. Join us Tuesday evening at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Scott Graham, who is author of several books, and his latest is the first in a proposed National Park Mystery Series. These are mysteries set in the national parks. The first one is called Canyon Sacrifice, and it's set in the Grand Canyon. When his new stepdaughter is kidnapped during a visit to the Grand Canyon, archaeologist Chuck Bender faces up to his secret past and his unfamiliar family man role as he confronts every parent's worst nightmare, a missing child. That's the plot in brief of the book. Scott Graham, our guest for another 10 minutes or so, and you're welcome to join us uh, via Twitter at Utah Public Radio and on email. Uh, upraxis at gmail.com. Scott Graham, I'm, I'm just going to read this. Uh, you have a brief inscription which opens the book. Uh, this is a quote from John Stoddard. He says, To stand upon the edge of this stupendous gorge as it receives its earliest greeting from the God of day is to enjoy, in a moment, compensation for long years of ordinary, uneventful life. <laughs> That's quite the quote about the Grand Canyon. Isn't that great? <laughs> uh, uh, tell me about John Stoddard. 
You know, I don't know a lot about him. Okay, I, I just chose the quote. Uh-huh. Stumbled across his stumbled across his journals is what I was is is what I stumbled across. But he was an early explorer. Um, I, I don't remember if he was an academic, uh, but obviously fell in love with the Grand Canyon. Spent a lot of time uh, around the canyon, and uh, and then also kind of got a taste of, of the the darker aspects of the canyon as well. And so I used three of his quotes um, throughout the book. And, uh, you know, at first, the, the, the quote is, is one that's, a, um, as you say, more of, that, more of that feeling of the grandeur of the Grand Canyon. Uh, but the third quote is, is a little bit uh, um, darker, in and, and, and which he says, Only the melancholy murmur of the wind descended from the Grand Canyon of Arizona, that sepulcher of centuries. It seemed the requiem for a vanished world. Hmm. Uh, so I, just, I love the fact that, that um, he, he just read so much into the canyon. And, uh, and then what he, what he read into it was exactly what I'd seen in the canyon also, which is that you've got this beautiful place, but it's also a place where um, pathos can absolutely reign. And the scale is just, uh, just incredible. I think that's that's the first thing that hits people. That that's why they go. It's it's just the scale of the thing. Absolutely, yeah. It's 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 an experience for those who haven't who haven't been down there. I mean, and it's easy to to uh, look at pictures of a place and then to realize how crowded a place like the Grand Canyon is, and, and so say, well, I'll, you know, I'll I'll do that later. Um, but there is nothing like um, walking out to the edge of, of, of the Grand Canyon and looking across at it, because all of a sudden, the people you, the crowds you've been fighting your way through to get to the edge of the canyon, they're all behind you, you know, and you're looking out uh, at this at this thing that is truly, truly stupendous. Now you're talking about darker um, shades in the book. Uh, this is you know it's a mystery. There, uh, there's a death. Um, a, a man falls to his death, or maybe is pushed. And you, you, I, you talk about the fact that there are a fair number of falls, and, and you don't know whether it's a, you know a suicide or an accident, or or maybe maybe in some cases murder when people uh, absolutely fall off the edge of the cliff. Absolutely, that, that's one of the obviously attractions of murder mysteries in general. And uh, for years now, the, the best-selling nonfiction book at the Grand Canyon has been a book that's called Death in the Grand Canyon. I think the, 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 the main title is Over the Edge. Basically a compilation of all of the uh, um, ranger reports or, or official uh, legal reports of, of those who have died in the Grand Canyon, uh, divided up by type of death. So you've got a chapter on drownings and a chapter on heat stroke and a chapter on people who fell off their cliffs. Um, and it's a very real thing. Death does occur in our national parks and, and, and uh, certainly in the Grand Canyon. Um, and so uh, the, playing with that idea is, is something that, that I you know, enjoyed both because of the murder mystery aspect and because it's real when it comes to places like, in particular, the Grand Canyon. Is that something that, I don't know, that maybe fascinates us? Uh, one of the reasons maybe why some of us go is the, this, you know, nature is wonderful, but it, it can't kill you. Absolutely. No, there's no question about that. And you do, you learn very quickly, even on a day hike in a place like the Grand Canyon, uh, that, that nature's, the, nature's in charge. <laughs> and that's really what makes, what makes one of the pieces of, uh, that make the, the national parks, I think, so wonderful is that you you get out there and you realize what how small you are and and what a what an appreciation you have then for how big mother nature is are there extra problems i guess there are added advantages in setting a mystery in a national park uh i wonder if there are some problems you have to work through versus setting it in you know the city or or wherever else 
I, I, I don't think so. I, I personally think the National Park is, because I've spent so much time in the parks and so much time in the outdoors, I see it as this wonderful palette. I thought about trying, you know, I've enjoyed the idea of writing mysteries for a long time, and so I played with uh, what often people do, which is set these mysteries in these, in these dark cities where, you know, these kind of back, back streets and um, hard neighborhoods of cities uh, where plenty of death occurs as well. But that didn't interest my, you know, my philosophical mind at all. I mean, I wanted to be in the outdoors. And the national parks, what's great about them, if you're just talking about it purely from a, a construct basis with regard to putting together na- uh, a mystery, you've got a bunch of people in national parks. And when you're writing a mystery, you need a bunch of people because you need a bunch of suspects and you need a, you need a bunch of people, you know, all kinds of machinations back and forth. And uh, national park is a place where not only you've got the outdoors, but you've got a crowd of people who might have done it. Mm. Yeah, and the opening of your book is it's a crowd of Japanese tourists. It could have been any kind of you know Germans or whoever. Uh, right. It seems kind of a uh, kind of an interesting thing sometimes when you get that stereotype, which I think in many cases is true. Everybody else comes to the parks, and some of us don't go. You know, meaning you know residents that live nearby. Oh, that's exactly right. No, no, no. That's that's exactly right. We're all we're all guilty of that. Um, and uh, and I'm hoping that because my publisher, of course, is based in Salt Lake City, this is this is uh, a book that certainly um, is selling nationally. But um, lots of folks know Tory House Press out here in the West, and my hope is that the 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 readers out here in the West that pick up the book will then be be encouraged to go visit these places that the, that will say, oh wow, I do need to get over there, don't I? Uh, I want to talk a bit about archaeology before we uh, close. We just have about three or four minutes here. Um, so Chuck Bender is a professional archaeologist. He bids on contracts. His latest one is a, a contract, I believe, for the Navajo Nation. And it's it's kind of an interesting little dance. Um, the the, the uh, Navajos have hinted to him that it would be good if he found some Anasazi artifacts. What they're hoping... I think is the, the proof that the Anasazis were more culturally advanced than previously known. So, so they they wanted a certain outcome. Of course, professionally, they can't force him to to have a certain outcome. Uh, it's interesting that little dance that was going on. Sure, and and I'll say right up front that that's that's purely a fictionalization. Okay, um, that I, I wondered that, that I <laughs> that I created that just for the you know for the for the uh, um, to make the. Um, Plot that was a that was a, a plot device. However, I do know plenty of friends who are archaeologists who talk about you know the politics that are involved in archaeological digs, and there are certainly um, in almost all cases desired outcomes. And archaeologists you know are, are are subject to being aware of those outcomes while also needing to come up with what you know what the what the facts on the ground tell them. That's uh, certainly um, one of the careers that, that you would consider if you wanted to be in the outdoors all the time, right? Uh, archaeology be one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but I, I go to pains to, to make clear um, in this book and in the next that, that there is a lot of drudgery involved in archaeological work that, uh, um, you know, everyone who's seen the Indiana Jones movies may not be so aware of. Um, but, absolutely, you know, it's, it's like any other job. It's a day-in and day-out job. But you're at least getting to do a good chunk of it in the outdoors. I want to go back to something you mentioned early in the program. You said that, um, in in many ways, the national park experience, the outdoor experience, is a family experience. Uh, in yes. fact, you've you've written a book, Extreme Kids. I guess accompanying your kids on on extreme sports and and the like. What's your suggestion to to parents when you when you get out into the national parks, especially? 
uh, basically, I, my my main advice is don't push your kids too hard. Let your kids, if if you're taking your kids out in the outdoors the first time, whether it's to a park or just just um, anywhere, um, let your kids be the guide. Uh, kids are wonderful explorers. They know how far they want to to push themselves. Uh, I've known a lot of parents, myself included, who are really tempted to try to get their kids to take on more than they're really. Uh, capable of or or geared to take on at that age. And what you'll end up doing is kind of scaring kids away from the outdoors. Um, They're more aware than we are as adults of the power of uh, Mother Nature. They understand gravity, for example, uh, oftentimes much better than than, uh, um, young adults do. And um, so they'll be conservative, and you can let them be conservative and let them set their their um, parameters. And as a result, they'll they'll push the envelope more and more over time, and really come to love the outdoors. Hmm. Finally, I promised we'd get to this. So we just have about a minute left. To the Baffled Parents Guide to Coaching Six and Under Soccer. Uh, sure. How'd you get into this? I was basically the journalist on that job. There was a, a gentleman here in Durango who was a real soccer expert, and he uh, had the idea for the book. Um, but it's a it's actually a book that's out with McGraw Hill that has sold very well. One of their best selling um, coaching guides. They've kind of got the key series for uh, young coaching guidebooks, and that book has sold around the world very well. Uh, wrote it co-wrote it with a gentleman by the name of David Williams. And have been very proud of it. It's done a lot of good for a lot of people because, you know, what what he realized and what we wrote about was the fact that coaching young kids in any sport, but in particular soccer, where everybody's got their little three and four year olds out there kicking the ball around, <laughs> is very different than coaching them when they get a little older. Mm-hmm. And so it's very much aimed at those young, you know, parents who are just for the first time trying to get their kids to figure out how to, as you said, herd cats. And it's been very <laughs> successful as a result. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, another topic I'd, we would have got into if we had had time, uh, you'll just have to read the book, is uh, another of uh, Mr. Graham's books, Adventure Travel in Latin America. Um, Scott Graham is author of the first in a series. It's the National uh, National Park Mystery Series. This is called Canyon Sacrifice. It's set in the Grand Canyon. It's been a pleasure, Scott Graham. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom. We have a commentary coming up, and uh, coming up next, uh, or tomorrow, is a discussion of water. Uh, of course, it's a hot topic in the West always. Uh, Blanding, we had a report on UPR recently. They're letting their lawns go brown. We'll talk about that tomorrow on the program. Thanks for listening today. Utah Public Radio commentator Richard Ratliff. Oftentimes, the solution to difficult problems is to use the right tool. I remember a company with a small work team that had developed a relationship problem. This small team of less than a dozen members was critical to the successful operations of the organization. The team was polarized into two opposing factions, which of course made working together very difficult. Team members described the work environment as tense and toxic. They said they hated to come to work each day. They said the problem was so bad and had festered so long that it was impossible to solve. Company management was at a loss as to what to do short of recruiting a whole new crew, which was not an acceptable solution for a variety of reasons. There was no apparent good solution. Let me introduce now a man by the name of Edward de Bono, a European creative thinker who developed and promoted an idea called Poe, spelled P-O, Poe. The word is used to question the impossible. We sometimes hear statements such as, that is impossible, or we can't do that. 
For example, when I was young, people would often say, when saying something was impossible, well, we may as well try to fly to the moon. In the situation of the company's work team, the team and management had given up. It seemed impossible for the team members to work together effectively. Dr. De Bono cautioned against reaching such a conclusion too quickly. He suggested instead to poe the problem. Instead of saying, we can't do that, or that is impossible, rather, he said to ask, what would it take for man to fly to the moon? Dr. De Bono suggested that the impossible may suddenly become quite possible, and Poe becomes a valuable tool in resolving very difficult problems. The squabbling team members were asked, what would it take for you to forgive each other and to get happily back to work? Poe that idea. Within days, team members themselves had formulated and agreed on a strategy. Within a month, they and management reported that the wounds were stitched and healing. Some modern philosophers argue the isolation of life. They say we are all lone savages in a dangerous world. In reality, human life as we understand it is impossible without relationships. They are part of the human experience. No one is exempt. Unfortunately, people have problems in their associations together. That, too, is part of life's experience. Still, for most of us, happiness and success come in the context of relationships in our families, neighborhoods, community, and workplaces. Good relationships have a few things in common, purpose, respect, and trust. When mutual purpose, respect, and trust fail, relationships suffer. But usually with the right tools, a remedy is available. In the heat of an argument, when a child disobeys, again. When your neighbor's weed killer drifts onto your iris bed, again. When your boss is unsympathetic. When your employee just doesn't get it. When a telemarketing company interrupts yet again the privacy of your home after your many attempts to stop the calls. And when you just can't face another day working with that person. Ask, what would it take to improve the association? to improve our mutual purpose, respect, and trust. Poe that idea. Try it. What would it take? You may be surprised. A solution can be a short thought away, and the impossible may become possible. Consider the relationships. This is Richard Ratliff. Thanks for listening. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. So now we return to the fun drive. It's a two-day fun drive, year of the end drive, uh, end of the year drive, I should say. And uh, we are coming to you and needing to raise uh, some $15,000 uh, to uh, to balance the books here at the end of the year. Um, 
Uh, it costs some $3,300 a day to run Utah Public Radio. That uh, is $140 an hour, and we're, that's one of the levels that we're suggesting. The number to call is 1-800-826-1495. I'm pleased to be joined by telephone now by uh, a UPR supporter, UPR member, and uh, supporter of Access Utah, Steve McIntyre from Beaver Dam, Arizona. Steve, uh, thanks for joining me. Good morning, Tom. I, I want to report to you that at the southern end of your listening area, it is high autumn. I took some pictures this morning, which I may post to the UPR uh, 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 Facebook page. Oh, great. It is gloriously yellow while I know it's winter up where you are. Uh, what's the temperature down there? Well, I'm gonna, it's probably going to hit probably hit 60 degrees, but, you know, all the all the trees are, are the leaves are falling. I have a, 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 a mattress of leaves on the lawn, which we're going to sweep up today. I just—it's one of the things that uh, strikes me about about uh, your listening area is you cover such a large area. You know, back east where I come from, there's a—it's densely packed with uh, with public radio stations. There, you know, in New York City, they're 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 15, 20 miles apart. But UPR covers uh, all of Utah and Idaho and. And even us down here in Arizona, it is it is a large area. And what we try to do is bring a sense of community, of people talking to each other from all of those areas. I wonder if you had some thoughts, Steve, on uh, why people should support that kind of uh, programming. Well, you know, I, I, I am very much uh, struck by that. Um, one of the ironies of uh, uh, of uh, where I am is I do get uh, signals uh, from far away. I get uh, signals from you up in, in Utah. I get signals from Las Vegas. Um, I even get a, a, a signal from uh, Salt Lake City, and uh, of the radio stations, the public radio stations that I can listen to, and I do listen to public radio virtually all day, uh, Utah Public Radio is, is, is the one that uh, uh, really does strike me as, as having created a community, and it's the one that, that I identify with. Um, there's a certain authenticity, a certain, I know it's a funny word, but Utahness to to uh, Utah Public Radio and, and to access uh, Utah in particular, it's it's uh, it's it's hard to put into words. But there is an authenticity that, pardon me, that's a, that's another phone ringing. The, uh, uh, there is an authenticity that that is just uh, I don't know. It's 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 unique, and and uh, I'm. I'm a happy listener and a uh, happy supporter. In fact, I've already made my year-end contribution. Oh, thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. And maybe that call, maybe they're calling you to, 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 to give you the contribution. You can you can pass it on to us. Uh, the, <laughs> the number is 1-800. Would that it would be so. Yeah, would that it would be so. That's right. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Everything you just said, Steve, is, is what we're going for. I'm glad I'm glad it's getting through, at least, at least to you. Uh, we're, we're trying to do radio with uh, with a Utah accent, you might uh, say, to Utah issues and bring the community together. Though we are far flung, we have many issues in in common. Well, and uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Well, indeed, in fact, I've already ordered Scott Graham's book. I mean, for instance, you know, uh, uh, the uh, Grand Canyon is not so far from here. When my daughter was visiting here a couple of years ago, uh, the first thing we did was go down there, and so there's an I, you know, I can identify with. Uh, you know, even today, even today, the guest that you had on on Access Utah, and and uh, it had a, a direct uh, appeal and interest to me. Uh, the number is one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. So, Steve, you're in a kind of interesting position. You, uh, I think, you uh, had most of your career in the East. I, I think you're in the in in finances, stock market. Yes, sir. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I worked on. I was investment banker. I worked on Wall Street. The you know the real thing. My office was right off of Wall Street, and I worked for E. F. Hutton and uh, Low Broads and some. 
other investment banking firms that have gone have been consolidated now into the big behemoths. But mm. um, yes, I I, uh, I lived in, in in New York City, listened to WNYC, which has a certain um, authenticity of you know that's the public radio station in, in New York City. It has a certain authenticity, and I find uh, that Utah Public Radio has that same you know um, uh, authenticity of of place. Uh, so you're an Easterner who became a Westerner. What brought you out west? Well, you know, Tom, in my life I've lived in Europe, I've lived in Boston, New York, I've lived in outside of Philadelphia and in Maine. Um, about six or seven years ago I got involved in, in uh, a business prospect. It didn't, didn't pan out uh, as, a, as a business, but I did end up owning real estate here, and uh, I, you know, had effectively retired. So I have now retired to that corner of the world where Utah, which is seven miles north of me, and Nevada, which is eight miles west of me, in Arizona, where I technically live, uh, come together. Wallace Stegner said of this place, it's attached geographically to Utah, it's attached uh, politically to Arizona, and Arizona, and neither one gives a damn. <laughs> and uh, very confusing with the time zones. You, you, oh. you had an interesting comment when we did the daylight saving uh, time. <laughs> Indeed. If Utah went to daylight savings, uh, went off of daylight savings time, it would certainly simplify my life. Yeah. Um, so... Um, uh, again, uh, the reasons to um, you know to participate in the uh, the year end drive here. Uh, there's the need, obviously. We need to raise fifteen thousand dollars. Costs one hundred forty dollars per hour. That's one level. One one thing we've been uh, stressing, Steve, is, is a possibility. Now that we're heading into the holidays, is a thirty five dollar gift membership. This could be uh, for for anyone, and uh, perhaps that would jump start their giving. If you gave well, a, I a have membership. a friend here in in. Uh, in fact, I have a couple of friends in Beaver Dam, and I think that's a good idea. I, I have two ideas. I. I'm going to surprise them with gift memberships in Utah Public Radio. One of them may be listening right now, by the way. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. And, you know, a lot of people I talk with, Steve, and I know you agree, um, one of the factors when they decide where to live is do you have a public radio station there? Absolutely, absolutely. For me, uh, the two things are key. One is public radio, and the other one is access to skiing. Those are the two factors, yeah. Which which those you are the two most important criteria. <laughs> but you're okay there in Beaver Dam on those two accounts, yes. I have yes, indeed. I've got Brian Head, which is about a 90 minute drive, and uh, I have Utah Public Radio. Uh, the other thing is, is, I'll take it as a personal favor. I'm very curious personally to see response to Access Utah, and uh, so when you call, certainly put on that. Uh, mention that to the to the volunteer who answers that you support Access Utah. I'd love to get uh, responses, uh, comments. Even, you know, something you didn't like that, we're, that we maybe are not covering that we should. Uh, love to see the response to the program. We pour a lot of resources into the program. We think it is of value, and now is the time when you can tell us so and add a little money to that. The number is 1-800-826-1495. Uh, Steve, you've been a great supporter of Access Utah over the years, uh, with you know, financially and also with contributions, uh, emails and such. Indeed, if I were not so shy, I would call in more often, Tom, but uh, I'm glad that you guys accept comments over Facebook and Twitter, and uh, in my case, I often send my comment to, the, uh, to your email address. Uh, so the number again is one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. We're uh, coming down uh, near the end of time. We need to go to splendid table. So uh, Steve, one more time, what, uh, what your, your appeal to your fellow listeners to become members of Utah Public Radio during this uh, year-end drive? Folks, this is it. Utah Public Radio is the is the most authentic voice for Utah out there, and it really is a, a knitting a community. It's and it's a it's a it's a big job. It covers all of the state of Utah. Utah is a big state. It's a big place. 
uh, as well as uh, the border regions of Idaho, Wyoming, and, and, and here in Arizona. Um, I, if, if you are, when I first moved out to, uh, to YouTube, probably to Arizona, Tom, I had a dog, and we hadn't found the radio station yet. And uh, she was very, very nervous and skittish. She had come from, from Connecticut, where uh, uh, she would fall asleep in the snowbanks, and suddenly she found herself in the Mojave Desert. And then we found, uh, then we found UPR not long after I got here, and, and it, it was on the radio more or less constantly. And she settled. There's, there's, uh, I, I guess one of the odd, odd benefits is that there's a soothing, um, uh, reassuring thing that, that Utah Public Radio provides. But, but uh, I think the real thing that it does, of course, is, is it is a voice for the people of Utah who are, are far-flung and, and, and have diverse interests, but somehow UPR ties that all together. Well, thank you very much, Steve. Uh, Steve McIntyre in Beaver Dam, Arizona. Appreciate that very much. Thank you, Tom. The number, once again, is 1-800-826-1495. It's the year-end drive, two-day drive. Uh, we need to make some additional money to uh, to uh, make sure we're where we need to be to pay for the programs, $15,000 overall. Uh, it costs $140 per hour to operate Utah Public Radio, and that's one level. You could uh, take care of an hour for us. Uh, you could be at the dollar-a-day level, $365. And uh, a level that's been very popular today is the $35 gift membership. Uh, that is a membership that you uh, provide for someone else. And we'll send a card to, to them to that effect. And uh, this could perhaps precipitate giving from them over the years. Certainly will help us toward our goal. Uh, and I'll take it as a personal favor if you mention Utah, uh, Access Utah when you call. The number is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. And this one to table is next.